Welcome to the Time for Trainers Podcast, Season 3, Episode 24. I'm your host, Rob Beckman. Today, we'll be talking all things insurance for instructors with Alex Uli. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at the FTA, the Firearms Trainers Association. Visit their website at ftaprotect.com to learn more about their instructor coverage they offer and their competitive pricing. If you're a certified instructor, then you can apply for FTA coverage. Receive a special 10% off for listening to this podcast by entering promo code FTP10 at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by the team at Mountain Man Medical. Responsible fire instructors have trauma medical gear on the range and are trained to use it. Mountain Man Medical provides the highest quality name brand medical gear on the market at a guaranteed lowest price. Check out the Wind River Kit, especially designed for firearm instructors to have at the range. The Yellowstone is perfect to have on your belt or in your bag anywhere you go. Learn more at mountainmanmedical.com and scroll to the bottom and click on available discounts to learn how fire instructors can save 15% off the already guaranteed lowest prices on the market. And don't forget to click on the training link to take the emergency trauma response video course for free. Get the right gear and the right training at the best price anywhere on mountainmanmedical.com. We bring this podcast, support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, Every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Today, we're joined by Alex Uli from the Uli Law Center. Welcome, Alex. How are things going today for you? It's going great. Thanks for having me, Rob. Uh, you know, it's been a busy week, but uh, get to talk about something that I really enjoy. Uh, so I'm glad to join the podcast. Well, that's great because as I was teaching my last class of instructors, uh, get a lot of uh, questions when it comes to insurance coverage and trying to make sure people understand the different co- kinds of coverage that people need to look at. And when I was thinking about that, I couldn't think about anybody better to talk to that than you. So I'm glad you could make the time. Before we jump into things, can you give uh, a little bit of your background to our listeners who might not have heard you in the last, uh, last episode? Yeah, sure. So I'm I'm an attorney in Southern Indiana. I, I'm admitted to practice here in Indiana. I don't practice in any other any other state, but I do practice in in state court and in federal court. I primarily practice in the area of criminal defense, self defense. I do some firearms related stuff like uh, expungements, licensing appeals. I'll help people with NICS background check appeals uh, or voluntary appeal forms. They're called VAFs. Um, so I, I do that along with my father, uh, Mike Uli. We're both attorneys here in Southern Indiana. Uh, we're also firearms instructors. We teach uh, some basic handgun courses, and uh, that's where my background comes primarily for uh, the topic we're going to cover today is is not really through uh, handling uh, sort of business formation or insurance issues, but mostly through the formation of businesses myself and the consideration of, of insurance uh, and other potential areas surrounding liability. So uh, that's really where the background for me comes from in the discussion today. I've also done in the past some insurance defense work. So I have some familiarity with uh, insurance issues and uh, some things that insurance companies try to do or, or may not do uh, with respect to coverage. So um, I think it'll be a, a useful topic and I look forward to, to uh, chiming in today. Well, that's good. Well, the First thing I always tell my instructors when I uh, teach, take them through the course is to look into good instructor insurance, because from the instructor standpoint, that's probably your greatest exposure 
um, from a, from a liability standpoint, what are some of the things an instructor should think about um, that they could be, you know, potentially liable for when it comes from an instructor standpoint? Yeah. So the first thing I would consider uh, when you're teaching classes or when you're when you're thinking about the formation of your business is what sort of business structure do you want to have? So this isn't technically insurance, but there are some benefits to uh, certain types of business structure. So if if you are uh, running a firearms training business, and it's you as an individual, and you're just a sole proprietorship, which is just an, a business that's owned by you. There's no business entity, really. Um, that could provide you with more exposure than if, for instance, you had a business like an LLC, a limited liability company, or a corporation, because those uh, business entities are seen as separate entities that corporations are technically people within within the law. And of course, you need to follow the law in your particular state. Like I said, I'm from Indiana um, and the law varies from state to state. But generally, uh, in every state, LLCs or corporations are going to provide some level of protection for your business because generally, unless in very limited circumstances, the only liability will be to the company itself and not to you personally. Um, so if you have assets personally outside of the business, the only thing that would be exposed are the assets within the business. Um, so that's the first thing. It's not technically insurance, but it's a, it's a layer of protection simply by virtue of having a business entity. Mm -hmm. so, so that's one thing you should consider. Um, the next thing is actual insurance itself. Um, and one thing to consider when you're looking at various insurance policies um, is, it, number one, there's going to be some consideration for where you're teaching the class. So is it on your own property? Is it at a range somewhere? Where are you teaching this class? Um, you're going to have to be concerned about premise liability, maybe renter's liability. So if you're renting or leasing a property, you're going to have to be concerned about those sorts of issues. Um, but that's something that you'll want to address and likely be able to get within one policy that covers you for not only the premises, but also for any negligence that you may have or may be alleged to commit uh, during the course of your classes. So um, I guess just to, just to back up for those who don't know, uh, generally, if you're teaching a class, um, you're only going to be liable civilly unless you commit an intentional act against someone. Um, because an intentional act is generally going to be a criminal act, okay? But what we're talking about here primarily is civil liability. And civil liability as opposed to criminal liability is for monetary damages. And that's why we buy insurance, right? Is to help protect us from potential monetary damages that, we, that would otherwise bankrupt us potentially. Um, so make sure you've got enough coverage for the potential liability. Um, and that's something that an insurance agent would be able to help you through. Or if you're, if you're teaching a class through a particular organization, and we're not getting into the particular organizations too much here, 
sometimes those organizations have affiliate or recommended insurance companies that can help you guide through guide you through the process. Um, so that that can be a help a helpful resource. Yep, that would uh, that would be real really uh, good. And just uh, Fire Trainers Association, they sponsor our podcast, and uh, they're worth uh, checking out for sure when it yeah. comes to instructor insurance. Um, how does instructor insurance? Uh, does anything change when you're on the range and you're around the firearms when it comes to the liability for the instructor? Uh, nothing in particular changes. There's still this negligence standard, and for there to be a negligent act, uh, there has to be uh, a few elements, okay? Um, and it's, this is the same for any negligent act. And whether or not you're around a firearm doesn't really matter, except that you would be expected to act in a reasonably prudent manner uh, as expected by what a, a firearms instructor in your position would do. So uh, that's going to be dictated largely by the curriculum, what you are advertising to your students about what you will do, um, and whether you're going to follow the uh, sort of the universal expectations with respect to firearms handling, safe firearms handling. Um, so if you do those things, if you act within the scope of the curriculum that you're presenting to your students, uh, that will help minimi minimize claims of negligence against you. But like I said, every negligent, every claim of negligence has four basic components. There has to be a duty, a breach, causation, and damages. So number one, as a firearms instructor, you have a duty not to hurt your students and to provide a safe environment for learning about firearms. And so that's the duty. Then next, there has to be a breach. So you have to breach that obligation to your students. Then finally, there has to be a causation. So your act, your wrongdoing has to cause the problem, and then there has to be damages. So if the person suffers personal injury or harm in some way, you could potentially be liable. So those are the four components. And as long as you are following the safe rules for gun handling, staying within the curriculum, uh, you know, following the rules on the range. So there's the sort of the rules of safe gun handling that you have to follow personally, but then also as the instructor, make sure that you uh, properly control and uh, supervise the range. And then make sure that, you know, your, your students um, are, are clear on the instructions that you're giving. And one thing that I like to do personally is uh, make sure that you keep your uh, faculty to student ratio uh, at least two to one. So uh, I don't think people should have more than two students on the range for every instructor that's available to teach on the range. Now, that's a personal threshold that I prefer to adhere to. Some people are comfortable with more students on the range. Um, but I think you just have to sort of evaluate the students that you have in your class and see uh, what level of competence they have and what level of comfort you have with their skills and their ability yeah. to follow safe gun handling rules. Yeah, basic CCW class two to one if you've got you know a more advanced class 
Um, and keep in mind, we're talking about two to one. It's two people that are shooting. If you've got, you know, eight people and you're taking, you know, two out of time to go and do a, a shooting uh, qualification, that's that's okay. But, um, you know, think about, you know, as you said, Alex, the what the students' capabilities are. And if they're beginning shooters, you're going to have to have a lot lower ratio than if you have people that have been there, been in your class before, that you know their uh, their experience level, how they handle, and that you don't you don't have as many worries uh, with them doing something unconscious than you do with say like a beginning shooter. Yeah, that's but, exactly right. Mm-hmm. And one one thing that I, this is uh, sort of tend tangential, and I don't do this personally myself, but one idea that I've, I've heard tossed around at instructor courses is to use some sort of recording device for your classes so that if there is some unsafe act on the range, there is a record of uh, everything you've done to help prevent that, to show that you didn't do anything that was negligent, that it was a negligent act of your student. Um, so that's one thing you might consider. Like I said, I don't do that personally. I've heard it tossed around and and it's not, uh, I don't think it's a bad idea. And we were talking about this before we went on uh, to the show here, uh, Rob, that, uh, you know, it's amazing technology. So, so inexpensive these days, you can, you can have a camera set up to record the range um, relatively inexpensively. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I personally don't don't like that. Uh, I don't know, just because I don't like to record everything that I do, but um, there may be some benefit there from a, a legal perspective. Yeah, you, I could see going along, just having a, a camera to watch everything be kind of nice, but I could also see to where if you um, position camera properly, you could actually go along and use it for diagnosing shooting problems and such mm-hmm. and be able to go along and show the student um, yeah. just, you know, being big brother and having a camera on everything is, uh, it still isn't something I do, but I right. know I've gone along and videotaped people before and then uh, shown back to them about exactly what, I, what I'm seeing and what I'd like, like them to do, um, you know, when, when they're drawing or when, when they're, uh, you know, firing their pistol. Yeah, that's, that's the great point. I, I'm, I agree with you, Rob. I, I like it for that reason more so than the, the legal liability protection reason that, you know, video is a great way to show students what they're doing and how they can improve because, if you tell them what they're doing, they don't oftentimes don't even believe you uh, until they see it uh, on video. So it's a great learning tool uh, if for no other reason. Yep. When you're trying to teach something, see it, hear it, feel it, and you know it becomes locked into long-term memory. Uh, a lot easier for everybody. And I would also go along and tell people if you're going to go along videotape the range, Make sure you've got a good way of storing that because you will need one out of a thousand videotapes p- potentially. But when you think about what a eight hour day, you know, how much, how many gigabytes of video, then multiply that by 999 and the, those will never use, but that one time you might use it. And that's where you've got to go along before you start doing it. Because one, one of the things that comes from, uh, my experience is you got to be consistent in what you do, either videotape everything or videotape nothing. Because if you videotape one class, but then don't do the next one, somebody will go up and say, well, obviously you didn't want to videotape because you weren't going to go along and, uh, uh, follow your plan. And that's the reason why my client got injured. 
Right. That's a great point. Yeah. Whatever you do, be consistent with it. Um, and that, that includes those, these sorts of practices about whether or not you're recording your, your, your classes, but also how you teach your classes and the curriculum that you teach, because it's important to be able to stand by your curriculum and uh, why you teach what you teach. And because uh, you may have to defend your, your curriculum or the curriculum that you're teaching. Um, so be cognizant of that uh, and be consistent. Mm-hmm. And as I always go along and tell my students uh, or instructor candidates, teach to the curriculum. You might have opinions, you might have things like that, but when you start going along, going down those uh, rabbit holes, um, people might take that as uh, as good advice when you were just kidding, and those are the types of things that can come back and, and uh, get you. Yeah, and record-keeping is important. One thing that you learn as a student, if you take a class with Masad Ayub uh, through MAG-20 or MAG-40 or one of his other Masad Ayub group classes he, he recommends that you take notes during the class, and then when you're done with the class, uh, that you put your notes in a sealed envelope and mail it to yourself um, so that there is a copy of your notes uh, that's been sealed and unopened so that if you ever are in a self-defense situation and you have to defend what you, what your training was and what you knew at the time that you engaged in the act of self-defense, uh, you have a record of it. Well, the same principle applies to instruction. So you need to take good records, keep good records of the classes that you're teaching and the curriculum. And that way, if there is, ever is an issue, you have a record of exactly what you taught uh, on that day. And I keep but personally, we keep separate records for every class that we teach uh, in case there's any variance. We can show exactly what we taught in that class. Uh, so I think that's an important, important thing to do. Yep. I do the same thing. I take all the uh, release waivers, uh, tests, um, targets, different things along those lines. I put them together, staple them together and file them just in case at some point you know, one in a million chance that somebody comes back and wants to, you know, say that they get, they didn't pass things properly. And because I didn't do something, then, um, you know, I'm liable for it. I'll be able to pull that out and say, well, according to this, they tested out, they knew on the test exactly, you know, what the answer was, even if they forgot about it, they at least uh, showed on this test, be able to do it. And that's, uh, that, that's how you go along and build up, build a good defense, you know, yeah, ahead of time. Exactly. Yeah, and I, I don't mail a copy of all the documents uh, from every class that I teach to myself, but I do keep a digital copy of, like you said, all the waivers, all the the tests, the curriculum, the the powerpoints that we use, um, because we we keep an updated copy of those and save a copy for every class that we teach, so that at least there's a digital copy of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And keep in mind that if you ever get into a situation, um, they have, uh, you know, the power to go along and force you to turn over all that information so they can go in and look at it. The, the other party does. So yeah, exactly. be careful about that. Uh, yep. Question for you on the instructor side. What about waivers? What's your suggestion when it comes to release waivers and things like that? Yeah, so waivers, this is one area where you need to be pretty careful because frankly, I've, I've gone to 
quite a few events where I've signed a waiver. And as an attorney, I read the waivers with kind of a critical eye, just out of curiosity. And uh, there are lots of bad waivers out there. So, and a lot of times it's from people who simply get a form off of the internet and adapt it to, to their personal event. Um, please don't do that uh, because waivers to be binding and effective have to comply with state law. And state law is very specific in this regard. So, this is an important component uh, of protecting you. Uh, from liability. So this is an important part to, to invest in upfront, make sure you get it right the first time. Um, and I would suggest talking to an attorney in, in your state to, to get a waiver drafted for your particular uh, course. Because like I said, they're, they're very state specific, they're contracts. Um, so they have to be drafted very carefully. And uh, you want to make sure that it does the job you intended it to do. Mm -hmm. And keep one thing in mind for instructors, kind of like where I am, where I'm right there, Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky, you may need three different waivers or modifications to the waivers to call it specific uh, state uh, state uh, code and, and or specific language in order to comply. Yeah. So. Yeah. And if you're teaching on behalf of another organization, uh, they may have specific waivers that you need to to have signed, and that may not cover you. It may cover the organization and not you. So uh, don't think that if you're teaching an organization for XYZ or teaching a class for an organization XYZ uh, and you have the students sign their waiver, that that's going to protect you. Um, so make sure you have a waiver that covers you personally and or your business. Um, so be careful about that. This is one of those areas where, you know, a, a, an ounce of prevention, um, uh, has well over a, a, a pound of benefit. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, the worst I ever had, I went, I taught at a place one time where they had to sign my waiver and then two other waivers. So yeah. three, what three waivers per student. Yep. That's, that makes it fun when it comes to record keeping and everything else like that. Yeah. But yeah. you got to do it. Yeah. Um, because I mean, I, I'm an attorney, so I can talk bad about attorneys. Um, not that it, <laughs> anybody couldn't, uh, uh, but <laughs> but attorneys uh, are looking for ways to find liability um, because that's how they make a living. They they sue people, and to to sue people and and make money, you have to find avenues for liability. So they're looking for holes. In waivers, they're looking for holes in, in coverage and policies. Uh, so make sure you cover your bases. And when uh, COVID was just starting back there in 2020, we did a uh, episode with Clint Macro, and he talked about how he had modified his waivers to include COVID um, waivers, so that if people somebody got sick, they couldn't come back and sue him uh, mm -hmm. for it. I mean, a it would be hard to go along and prove where you caught something at, but at the same time. You don't want to have to go down that rabbit hole with some, proving to an attorney or getting your own attorney to fight them in order to you know make them go away. You'd rather just go along and say right here on the waiver says that you know you know they they accept those risks with it or yeah. whatever the verbiage was for it. So very interesting. Well, hey, here's something I know my instructors from time to time get confused between instructor insurance and self defense insurance um, for it. Um, self defense, you know, we're talking about you know you're out going around town and you're forced to defend yourself. 
Um, where, where's the liability and why should, why, why is that different than the instructor insurance? Yeah. So like we were talking about earlier with the instructor insurance, that is for civil liability in your capacity as an instructor. Uh, so that only has to do with actions you take as an instructor. Self-defense insurance is generally not technically insurance. Now, there are different types of products out there. There, uh, there are membership sort of products like ACLDN. I think CCW Safe may be this way. Mm-hmm. And then there are other actual insurance products. I think USCCA's product might actually be insurance. Um but these are for what would otherwise be criminal acts if you were not justified in your use of self-defense. So if you are forced to use um, deadly force or, or some other uh, level of force in self-defense, these memberships or coverage policies uh, have different sorts of provisions. It depends on uh, the organization that you're, you're with. but the general idea is that if you're charged criminally, they will assist in your defense of that criminal case. Uh, and that could include helping you post bail if you're arrested and you're likely to be arrested if, if it's a deadly force situation. It could, it could be helping you retain an attorney, and that may be an attorney of your choice, or in some cases, the organization may have discretion with who to who to have as your attorney. It could be uh, funds for expert witnesses, funds for depositions or transcripts or accident reconstruction, or not accident reconstruction, uh, crime scene uh, reconstruction or investigation, uh, all sorts of things like that. So these these programs uh, that help with the assistance after a self-defense accident are for criminal liability primarily. Now, some of them also cover civil liability after an act of self-defense. So if you are uh, either acquitted of a criminal charge or not charged criminally, you could still be sued civilly by, for instance, the the attacker's family. So if someone attacks you, you shoot them and they die, uh, the, the deceased family could still sue you civilly uh, for monetary damages. And some of these programs will assist you in the defense of those civil suits. So this is purely for acts of self-defense, not for acts in your capacity as an, as an instructor. Okay. Or if you're someone who's engaged in like a I don't know, security of some sort. Security guard, police officer, somebody whose job it is. Correct. They can't. Most of these policies have exclusions or membership uh, organizations have exclusions for those sorts of activities uh, because that's your job. That's your occupation. It's not an act of personal self-defense. Mm-hmm. And keep one thing in mind, um, because I think this is almost universal in the self-defense uh insurance benefits uh, area you have you have to be um the innocent party if you go rogue and you know end up shooting somebody and it stinks to high heaven as as they say um pretty much none of these policies will actually uh cover you um simply yeah. because um nobody wants to be sitting there trying to defend somebody's illegal action yeah exactly and and some of these companies that provides self. To, I'll, I'll just continue to call it self-defense insurance. It's not 
generally insurance, insurance, but just uh, as long as people understand it's not technically insurance most of the time or some not anyway. Um, Some of them have discretion about whether or not to provide assistance based on their assessment of whether you acted legitimately in self-defense or whether it was a criminal act. Um, so that's just one thing to consider when you're thinking about joining one of these organizations. Is that something that you're willing to live with? Uh, do you want them to have discretion about whether or not to provide that coverage up front? Um, but on the other hand, some of them will say, we'll provide you with coverage, but if you are ultimately found guilty or you take a plea, we can ask for recovery of any expenses we provided on your behalf. So those, those are things that you need to consider um, because here's the reality. I, I handle criminal defense cases and sometimes innocent people plead guilty because they get a deal that's too good to refuse. Um, that keeps them out of jail, avoids the risk of a trial, avoids the expense of a trial. Um, it's hard to fathom that someone who's innocent would plead guilty, but it happens every day uh, in the United States because of the coercive nature of uh, the plea bargaining system. So uh, if you plead guilty, some of these programs may ask for you to reimburse them for all the money they spend it on your behalf. So make sure you look into those sorts of things before you decide what product uh, you want to to choose, if you choose one at all. Mm-hmm. Some, uh, here's something that some people are confused about. When it comes to insu- instructor insurance and even the uh, self-defense insurance, does your homeowner insurance give you any coverage for uh, for those kind of liability situations? So, so generally not for self-defense. Um, it, it could for, for acts of negligence, potentially. Um, homeowners insur- insurance, once again, is, is civil liability insurance. Um, it won't cover intentional acts. And what is an act of self-defense? It's an intentional act. Um, you are uh, defending yourself. You're using force in self-defense. And you're doing it intentionally. So generally, insurance like homeowners insurance wouldn't cover an intentional act. Uh, with that being said, it could potentially cover firearms-related negligence uh, for civil liability. Mm-hmm. Yep, and that's one of those things to where again, um, we're not experts. We're not insurance agents. Um, read the fine print and understand what will and won't cover. Because uh, I know from just the instructor classes I've had, you know, there have been people. You know, well, my homeowner's insurance will cover that. Well, it might, but at the same time, will it is is a bigger question. And make sure make sure you you read the fine print policy because it might it might sound like they will, but you've really got to understand uh, those the uh, the legal ease, as they say. Yes. Uh, insurance companies are uh, very good at writing their policies to be ambiguous so that if there's a discrepancy about their policy, they they can uh, use their money and resources to defend it in court where their policyholders might not otherwise be able to. So uh, maybe that's somewhat cynical, but that's, in my experience, been the way it works out in lots of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Well, and when you were talking about, you know, innocent people pleading guilty, you know, if you were facing potential of 20 years in in jail and you got offered, you know, no jail time and five years probation, but you had to plead guilty for it, 
Um, you know, that'd be one of those situations to where it's like, okay, I can be my, around my family. I'm not in jail. Um, you can sit there and say, Hey, I'm going to go till the very, very end. And, uh, Andrew Branca, who we've had on the podcast before has gone along and said that you got, only have about 25% chance of getting the right verdict out of a jury. And that is either jury finding you guilty when you're innocent, innocent, when you are guilty or, or the other permutations of it also to where you go along and, you know, finding you innocent when you are innocent is, uh, not necessarily a guarantee, um, cause it all depends on the facts that facts and how well your, your attorney presents your facts and how well the prosecutor uh, presents their facts for it. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the uh, jury as a whole too. I mean, they don't like you. They don't like you no matter what the, what the facts are. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, do, do, do they like you? Do they like the state's witnesses? Are there uh, police officers who are testifying against you? And it's a jurisdiction where the, the jury pool uh, is very supportive of police officers. Is it a is it a jurisdiction that doesn't like firearms? Um, you know, so there are lots of things that go into consideration and things that make uh, the outcome of a, of a trial by jury unpredictable. So so you're right. I mean, the, the, there's always a risk there and it's hard to, to predict what the outcome would be. So some people uh, make that calculation, that risk reward calculation and decide to take the guilty plea uh, if it lets them go home. Yep. And that's why jury consultants get paid so much. So they tell the attorney, this is the person you should keep. This is the person you shouldn't keep and be watching and seeing what the jury's doing. So they could, they get a sense of uh, how well they're being received. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Very, very interesting stuff. Um, definitely not something a firearm instructor thinks about very often, but as in the firearm business, you need to think about those types of things because when you're in front of the jury, they don't care how fast your draw is or how accurate your shots are. They're going to be looking at, okay, how well did you run a business from a liability standpoint? And are you guilty of this or not? Yeah. Yeah. If, if it's a, a civil case and you're being uh, evaluated on whether or not you took the reasonable uh, steps to conduct your class in a safe and appropriate way. Um, you know, they're going to be looking through every action you took, all the records you have with a fine tooth comb. So make sure that you keep good records, make sure that you have the coverage, the insurance coverages that you need and um, make sure, like we said, that you, you make that you take that ounce of prevention to prevent a, a pound of pain. Alex, last question for you. How long should you keep the records? Yeah, so <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, so yeah. it, it's going to depend to some extent on the statute of limitations um, in your in your jurisdiction. That's one consideration. The other is, uh, I, I guess, maybe there's some practical benefit to keeping the records, not not so much for whether an accident or an occurrence of some sort happened in class, but whether your students are involved in some sort of incident or they're ever involved in self-defense. I think it's a good service to provide to keep those records for your students in case they are ever involved in an accident you can show what they were taught and why they may have done what they did. Um, so I, I always suggest that the students keep those records themselves, but we keep records for our students for that reason. Um, so that if, if we ever 
uh, need to, if they ever request of us records from the class that they took, we have those available for our students. And let's face it, I mean, students you taught five, six years ago may not be involved in a self-defense acts or uh, occurrence ever, or it may be five years from now or even longer. So um, we we keep the records basically indefinitely, but that's sort of a more of a practical consideration, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yep, de- definitely. And uh, it can be a good service to your students if somebody lost their certificate and they need to apply for a CCW license or they're applying for some something else for it to be able to uh, provide that to them uh, versus yeah. going along and making them take the whole course over again. Yeah. So, well, Alex, uh, we've been asking all our guests this year to mention a important mentor, somebody who's influenced them throughout their life. Do you have... Uh, someone in mind? Yeah. So uh, I always mention my dad. Um, he's an attorney, obviously, but uh, he's also a firearms instructor. He's what got me into uh, the practice of law and of firearms instruction. Um, but he's also the person who got me introduced to, to firearms at an early age and to personal responsibility and uh, to, to firearm safety and, 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 uh, you know, respecting the not only the capabilities of the firearm, but the harm that it can cause. And I, I think that those are important lessons to learn as a as a small as a as a young person. So I certainly look up to him for that and for the mentorship he's provided me through my life. I've been fortunate in that regard. Um, uh, as far as otherwise, I I know that Masada Ayub has been a big influence on me. He, I've taken Mag 40. I've been to his Deadly Force instructor course. He's a very impressive person as an instructor, as a shooter, um, and just as a as a good human being. So um, uh, he's been a positive influence in my life, and uh, he's sort of provided some framework, I suppose, for my development as an instructor, and uh, to some extent as an as an attorney because. He provides more of a real person, uh, street level perspective of what people experience when they are involved in a self-defense encounter. Um, So it sort of takes away some of the legalistic aspect and brings a real world perspective to the situation, um, while also keeping in mind the legal aspects. Um, so, so those two primarily, and then, and then Tiger McKee is also a great uh, mentor. He, he wrote the book of two guns about the AR-15 and the 1911. Um, so that was sort of a fi- foundational text that I read when I got, was getting started in firearms training. Um, so those are sort of two foundational instructors that I, I suppose have had the most influence on me. And I would recommend if anybody um, is thinking about going to a Masada Oop class that they do it sooner rather than later. He's uh, not a spring chicken anymore. He still can outshoot me. It's very great to see. But um, if you want to get to his Mag 20 class, I know he's doing one um, up in uh, Kensington, Pennsylvania, outside of Pittsburgh in the beginning of November. Plus, he's doing the uh, instructor course, too. And so that'd be two different things for the instructors to kind of check out. And uh, he does classes all over the United States and uh, definitely worthwhile your time to take them while you can uh, from them. Well, Alex, where can people find more out about the uh, about Alex Uli and about what classes you might be teaching? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, I have a small firm practice here in Indiana, ulilaw.com. You can find out more about my practice and what I do. Uh, but firearms wise, we also have a, a training business. It's o2gungroup.com. Uh, we teach primarily NRA curriculum, um, but we also teach uh, my dad and I a five hour legal class about the lawful use of force and self defense. And we talk about a number of issues in that class, what we consider to be sort of the essentials of uh, principles that people should know if they're going to carry a firearm for self-defense or even just keep a firearm in their home um, because people can get into trouble uh, just because they don't know what they don't know. And um, so those are the two things that we do primarily, the NRA basic uh, handgun course and the five-hour legal seminar. Again, that's at o2gungroup.com. Good. And I'll add those to the show notes for those uh, people that are interested. You can check all that stuff out. Well, Alex, thank you again for your time this evening and for your expertise when it comes to insurance coverage for instructors. And I hope our uh, listeners found this useful. Yeah, it was great to be with you, Rob, and I hope they get something from it. You have a good night. Thanks, Rob. You too. That's a wrap for this episode. I hope you found it interesting talking about insurance. And I hope you can share this with your friends, other instructors who might benefit from this information. Now, do you have somebody you think I should talk to on the podcast? Do you want to come on the podcast? Send me your suggestions at FTP at concealedcarry.com. You can also leave us feedback on our Facebook page, or better yet, leave it on our website at firearmtrainerpodcast.com. Website also allows you to search all our previous episodes from anything on marketing to additional training to social media and dealing with those challenging students from time to time. Remember, visit our sponsors, especially the Firearm Trainers Association at ftaprotect.com and check out their instructor insurance. Establishing your business, becoming a certified instructor, going along coming up with your branding were your first steps. Your next step should be FTA coverage. Remember to use promo code FTP10 for 10% off at checkout. We bring this podcast support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Stay safe, everyone. Concealed Carry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.